0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit truegreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed.
1: I'm Ed O'Keefe in Washington. On this 4th of July Face the Nation, Americans are celebrating their freedom. But is it too soon to declare independence from COVID-19? Across the country, America seems to be making up for what was lost on this holiday weekend last year. Amid more signs that life
2: is slowly getting back to normal more jobs, better wages. That's a good combination. Put simply, our economy is on the move and we have COVID-19 on the run.
1: But with the dangerous Delta variant spreading rapidly and vaccine programs stalled, is it time for a new strategy? We'll talk with the head of President Biden's COVID response team, Jeffrey Zeints, and former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Then we'll go beyond Washington to check in with two governors facing unique challenges, Oregon's Kate Brown and Utah's Spencer Cox. Rescue efforts at the collapsed condo are on hold again in Surfside, Florida. We'll tell you why and get the latest on the investigation into what caused the disaster with Surfside Mayor Charles Burkett. Plus, yet another massive cyber attack, this time affecting computer servers of hundreds of U.S. companies.
2: The initial thinking was it was not the Russian government, Um, but we're not sure yet.
1: Indiana Congressman Andre Carson sits on the House Intelligence Committee. We'll ask him about the attack and UFOs. They're now called Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. Carson tells us why they're finally being taken very seriously. It's all ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation on this 4th of July. Happy Independence Day to you. I'm Ed O'Keefe. John is off this week. And for a holiday weekend, there is a lot of news for us to get to this morning. We begin with the collapsed building in Surfside, Florida. At least 24 are confirmed dead, and there are still 121 unaccounted for. CBS News correspondent Omar Villafranca is in Surfside this morning. Omar, good morning.
3: Good morning, Ed. The remaining portion of the Champlain Tower South could come down as early as Monday. Now, on Saturday, rescue crews were replaced by demolition crews here at the site of the collapsed South Florida condo as officials shifted their focus to bringing down the unstable remainder of the structure ahead of Tropical Storm Elsa. Demolition crews have already started boring holes into the concrete to hold the explosives that they plan to use. Now, officials said demolishing the rest of the building could not be avoided with Tropical Storm Elsa looming in the Caribbean and because it's forecast to hit South Florida by Tuesday morning with maximum sustained winds of 70 miles per hour. Now, Governor Ron DeSantis said Saturday that the building is shifting and it's structurally unsound and the fear is that the storm could bring the structure down in the wrong direction.
1: Omar, what are the safety risks involved with this demolition, and how could that potentially affect the search and rescue efforts?
3: Well, some families have actually asked if they could go inside the remaining structure and try to just salvage anything uh, from there. Keep in mind, when this happened, people just ran out uh, in the clothes that they were wearing, but they can't. It's, it's too unsafe, and we're also learning that Miami-Dade police are going to end up going to the buildings that are next door, knocking door-to-door before uh, the implosion to try to get those residents out, of course, for safety reasons. That is the big issue. Uh, The mayor of Miami-Dade actually said that when they bring down the building, officials would resume the search on sections of the pile that they have safe access to as soon as they can clear some of the new debris. And the good news on that, they'll be able to have access to some areas that they didn't have access to before.
1: Omar Villafranca in Surfside, Florida. Thank you. For more on the building collapse and the latest on the demolition plans, we turn now to the mayor of Surfside, Charles Burkett. Mr. Mayor, thank you for joining us on this Independence Day. I appreciate that this is a fluid situation, lots of conflicting information about exactly what may transpire. What is your understanding of how soon this building could be brought down?
4: As soon as possible. Uh, As of this morning or even last night... Uh, I'm sorry, as of early this morning, uh, the crews were about 80% complete with their preparation to bring the building down. Uh, As you know, the, uh, the, the fact that the building is being prepared to be demolished has stopped the work, which is critical. We need to get back to work as soon as possible. We need to get this building taken down, and we need to move forward with the rescue of all those people that are still left in the rubble.
1: So you're not ruling out that it could happen today at some point? No, I'm not. Okay, so it could happen on the 4th of July. There's no concern about the symbolism of that, potentially.
5: We
4: haven't had the luxury of time to even think about that.
1: Understood. Uh, Completely understood. Um, Can they guarantee as they prepare to bring this building down that it won't disrupt the ongoing rescue effort and and that debris field that sits there just next to the tower?
4: Well... The intention, uh, well, the intention is is to bring the building down in a westward direction so that the uh, debris pile that exists with victims in it is not affected. You know, the cur- the hurricane is going to turn out to have probably been a blessing in disguise because there's an area of that mound which we were not able to work in safely. And uh, this, this demolition is going to open up wide the whole area, and we're going to be able to pour resources onto that pile or as the... Uh, The fire chief recently said we have resources that are five deep and we are going to attack it big time and we are going to try to pull those victims out and reunite them with their families.
1: And after 11 days, that is still the mentality, that this is a search and rescue, not a recovery effort?
4: It's absolutely not a recovery effort. I I constantly am telling people about the BBC uh, documentary which outlines survivability after a building collapse where they pulled a lady in Bangladesh out after 17 days. So we're not even near that. And, you know, there's nobody, nobody uh, in charge really talking about stopping this rescue effort. And this rescue effort, as far as I'm concerned, will go on until everybody's pulled out of that debris. Understood.
1: Um, As they prepare also to bring down the building, whenever that happens, is there any concern for those other nearby towers? And are precautions being taken to protect those in the event that this doesn't go well?
4: Well, you said earlier that the police are going to go door to door. However, those buildings were evacuated the day of the incident. So there are no people living in the building to the south or the north. So that should not be a barrier for us to move forward.
1: Good to hear. Um, You've been in constant contact with these families who are awaiting word and from the people who lived in the building and were able to get out. Um, You know, they've gone from, obviously, the shock to grief, anger, some of them acceptance about what's going on. How are they after these 11 days?
4: Well, this is an emotional hell for them, and it's something that, you know, I'm focused on dealing with because we have two objectives. One is to pull their relatives out of that rubble, all of them, and number two is to focus on supporting those families, and that's exactly what we've done from the very beginning. They have had anything they need. And that starts from the president on down. Uh, President Biden uh, did his job. He did what he promised he would do. And we are all very thankful to him. He came to our town. He consoled the victims. He congratulated the rescue workers. And he was extremely presidential. And again, we are very thankful for that. We've had our two senators who have been engaged like you can't believe. Marco Rubio calls me, Senator Scott. Texts me almost every day and asks me what I need. Uh, we've had our, our, our uh, United States representatives, uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, has been fabulous, as have all our state elected officials. But the governor has been especially uh, uh, engaged. He's been here almost every day. I know he flies down from North Florida. He uh, talks to us. He tells us what his concerns are. As a matter of fact, I, uh, I owe the governor a debt of gratitude because with his help, we were able to provide information to the mayor of Dade County that she needed um, in order to you know, get this demolition going sooner than later. I know that she was getting lots of information, lots of conflicting information, but from the very beginning, the governor and I uh, urged her to knock this building down as soon as possible because the bottom line is, the building's been a problem since the very beginning, and we need to eliminate all the problems and all the barriers to getting everybody out of there. So once this building's down, it's going to be a green light, full speed ahead, maximum effort to uh, pull these victims out and reunite them with their family. Go- Mayor Kava has been extraordinary. Her leadership ability has been incredible. She's been decisive. Right. She's been tough. And she's been compassionate. So listen, we're firing on all eight cylinders as far as all of the resources, all of the... Uh, All of the tactics that are happening, as I've said from the beginning, we do not have a resource problem. We only have a luck problem. And this storm is the latest bit of uh, challenging uh, circumstances that we're facing.
1: Sure. I want to ask you quickly about one piece of local reporting from the Miami Herald that found that the building's condo association had emailed Surfside City officials just three days before the building collapsed saying that officials were holding up repairs by not responding. What did you or your colleagues in city government know about this request? And does that signal that this potentially could have been prevented if your colleagues had responded sooner?
4: Uh, no. The uh, the issue is this. Uh, this, this. This issue all started in 2018 with a report that detailed uh, significant deficiencies at the building. Uh, three years later, um, the Condo Association was getting around to... Uh, organizing the work to be done to address those uh, deficiencies which had been pointed out three years earlier. Uh, our building official received a, uh, a uh, courtesy uh, request from them, not a permit application, not, a, not the details that would allow them to move forward. However, they were looking for guidance on certain issues. Uh, our building official responded. Uh, it, was just, it was a bad coincidence just hours before the building collapsed with his answers um, to their questions. So I wouldn't say that the building official delayed uh, the work that was gonna get done, but I will say that the building official um, will be commenting on the details of that interaction uh, fully uh, at at some point in the very near future.
1: Well, we look forward to that, but first we look forward to the ongoing uh, search and rescue mission. Best of luck to you, to your colleagues, to all those rescuers who've come from all over the country to help. I know we saw a truck from New Jersey roll by a little while ago. Thank you. Mayor Burkett, tonight, the president's planning a celebration of our independence from COVID-19 at the White House. Mark Strassman reports on America's birthday and where we are as a country in terms of gaining our freedom from the virus.
2: In much of America, this July 4th seems to celebrate freedom from COVID. America's back and the Dodgers are back. What a difference a year makes. Two-thirds of American adults have had at least one shot of the vaccine. That's shy of President Biden's goal of 70% by July 4th. But it's also close enough. New cases have plunged 95% from COVID's peak. Like so many relieved Americans, Washington state's ready to party for the fourth. We are open big time in the state of Washington. (laughs) AAA predicts, Holiday travelers this weekend will nearly reach pre-pandemic numbers. In a first, airline passengers surpassed the 2019 benchmark last Thursday. America is reopening. Sometimes it seems everyone's hiring. This jobs fair in Atlanta had almost 3,700 positions to fill.
6: So at this point, we'd like to make you an offer for the job. Are you willing to accept?
2: The economy added 850,000 jobs last month. That number would be higher if businesses like this California restaurant could find more busboys and dishwashers.
4: Busboy and dishwasher $20 an hour. I mean, $20 an hour
0: uh, is a lot of money. Still, there is nothing.
2: Scientists worry about the sprawling Delta variant, highly contagious and now present in all 50 states. If you've not gotten the vaccine yet, the virus is still
7: a very real threat
2: to you. This Colorado clinic closed too little demand. Vaccinations remain polarizing, a tale of two COVID Americas. In 20 states, 70 percent or more of people have had at least one shot. But in 10 others, that rate is below 55 percent. And roughly 1,000 counties in America have a rate below 30 percent. On the 4th, no one wants to think about more struggle. But before the end of this month, the Delta variant could become America's most dominant.
1: Our thanks to Mark Strassman reporting from Atlanta. We turn now to the White House COVID-19 response coordinator, Jeff Zients. Good morning and happy 4th, Jeff, thank you for being with us.
8: Good morning, Ed, and and happy 4th.
1: Yes, and we've come a long way since the last July 4th, and you know, a lot of it is a testament to science, but should we really be declaring independence right now from the pandemic?
8: With so many people now vaccinated. Tens of millions of Americans can now return to life more to more normal life, you know, getting together with friends and family, going to restaurants, attending sporting events. Now, to be clear, that's not true for unvaccinated people. Unvaccinated people are not protected. So we have a lot more work to do across the summer months to reach unvaccinated people, make it easy for people to get their shot and their second shot and to answer people's questions. And key to answering questions are physicians and other healthcare professionals. So increasingly, we have vaccines in doctors' offices. If you're not vaccinated, you're not protected until you are fully vaccinated. And until you are fully vaccinated, you need to mask up and follow the public health standards. But the great news is so many Americans are now fully vaccinated and can return to life as normal. And that is worthy of celebration.
1: Well, what specifically are you going to do to get those unvaccinated Americans to actually get a shot? According to the CDC, 36 percent of those eligible for that vaccine, more than a third of people 12 and over, haven't received even a single dose. What has to be done specifically to get those people to get a shot?
8: The good news is across the last several months, we've seen an increase in vaccine confidence, more and more people wanting to get a shot. So that's good news. Now we need to make sure that we meet people where they are. Make it really easy to get a shot. Meet people uh, at sporting events, at places of worship, deploy mobile units to reach people in their neighborhoods. We also have to be available at a local level to answer people's questions about the vaccine about safety and efficacy, so we are ready to answer people's questions and give them their first shot. We're going to continue to do this in a fair and equitable way so that we reach all Americans and we vaccinate as many Americans as possible across the summer months.
1: One of the more troubling uh, aspects of this is now the partisanship of getting vaccinated. A New Washington Post poll out this morning reinforces that 86% of Democrats have received at least one shot of the vaccine compared to 45% of Republicans. But 38% of Republicans, one of a third of the GOP overall, say they will most definitely not get shots against the virus. How do you take the politics out of this?
8: Well, I think President Biden has been very, very clear from day one. This is about public health. This is not about politics. And we need to continue to reach people where they are and answer their questions and have trusted messengers at a local level. The good news is as people see their friends and family and neighbors get vaccinated, more and more people get vaccinated. Also, think about close to 90% of seniors now with at least one shot. That's so important, as I said, because that is the most vulnerable population. And at the same time, clearly at 90%, there are people from all parts of America, political parties and beliefs. Uh, so, we need to make sure that we continue to build on the progress we've made to build vaccine confidence to make it even easier for people to get vaccinated. At
1: the same time that you're urging local officials and athletes and doctors to take up this issue and to promote vaccinations across the country, the federal government's now preparing to send in surge response teams to these states that are having outbreaks, especially of the Delta variants, especially the states out west and in the south. Talk to us a little bit about what those surge response teams are, what they're going to do, and does that potentially either affect or help getting people vaccinated if the federal government is sending in officials?
8: Well, we're working with governors and state and local officials, particularly in those areas where we see increases in cases. And those are generally areas where they have lower vaccination rates. So the federal government stands ready with a whole-of-government effort to work with local officials to increase vaccinations, to provide increased testing, and also therapeutics to ensure that people don't get sick who have contracted the disease. So we're going to work with our state and local partners, particularly in those areas of the country, with lower vaccination rates to make sure we're doing everything we can to stop the spread of the disease.
1: Real quick, if I'm somebody who's been vaccinated, if there's someone watching this program who's been vaccinated and curious, um, do they need to get a booster shot this fall with their flu vaccine?
8: That is a question that's being studied in clinical studies. We will look, the Biden administration will look to the scientists and to the doctors on advice on boosters. That has not been determined yet. What I can tell you, if boosters are needed, we are ready as we have been throughout this fight with the pandemic. We have contingency plans, we have supply. So if the decision is made, the boosters are needed. We are ready, but that decision has not been made by the science, scientists and the doctors. And today.
1: you don't have any sense of when it will be made?
8: It'll be based on clinical trials that are ongoing. And as soon as the doctors and scientists determine they have the data they need, they'll make that decision.
1: Jeffrey Zients is the White House COVID-19 response coordinator. We thank you for spending part of Independence Day with us. Face the Nation will be back in one minute. Stay with us.
9: This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, Or text WONDERYPOD to 500-500.
1: We go now to former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who is on the board of Pfizer. He joins us from Westport, Connecticut. Good morning, Doctor. Good to see you. Happy Fourth. Um, Good morning. As we get started, I wanted to follow up on something Jeff Zines told us there in our conversation, that the science and trials weren't complete in terms of whether boosters, booster shots, will be necessary. That's not what we've been hearing from drug companies and from other medical professionals. In your view, are we going to need boosters this fall?
10: I think some people will have the option of getting boosters, and I think it's going to be recommended for some people. Um, The trials are ongoing. Jeff is right. Those trials are going to read out in the next couple of months. There is some data right now um, that does support the fact that when you get a booster, it does broaden your immunity and does deepen your immunity, meaning that you get more antibodies in terms of from the initial response from the second shot. And you get a broader complement of antibodies. You get what we call polyclonal response, which means you're getting antibodies against more parts of the virus, which does suggest that a booster could give you better immunity against some of these variants. I think where we're likely to end up with this is that there could be a recommendation for certain people, people who are maybe over the age of 65 or 60, um, people who are out a certain length of time from receiving their second dose. And I think that that will be the recommendation that ACIP or CDC ultimately settles on, including people who may have pre-existing conditions that put them at higher risk of COVID disease. So the boosters are Likely to be recommended for everyone. I think they'll be recommended for people who are at higher risk. And what we've seen from the clinical data, and the clinical data that we have right now is people who've been naturally infected from COVID looking at the durability of their immunity. Mm -hmm. What we see from that data is that the, the immunity does decline over time. So when you look out seven or eight months from people who've been naturally infected, particularly among older individuals, the immunity does decline over time.
1: And when it comes to the Delta variant, which is now raging across many Western and Southern states, uh, how many more Americans could be affected by that and how soon? I
10: think given how transmissible this variant is, it's likely to infect about 85 percent of the population. Or what What I mean to say is 85 percent of the population is going to end up with some level of immunity to coronavirus. We now have a choice in terms of how we acquire that immunity. You can acquire it through vaccination or you're going to end up acquiring it through natural infection. I think people who choose to acquire it through natural infection may end up acquiring it more than once. But given how transmissible this is, it's probably going to infect or leave 85% of the population with immunity before it starts circulating with this level of velocity. We now have about 55% of the population with at least one dose of uh, Of vaccine in them. So it leaves a lot of people who are going to be vulnerable to this infection. We've probably infected about a third of the population. So some complement of the people who've chosen to remain unvaccinated have been previously infected with the virus. But there's still a lot of vulnerable Americans when you talk about absolute numbers of people.
1: Uh, Doctor, the, the White House is holding this big Independence Day event tonight. They've been talking broadly about declaring independence from the pandemic or the idea that Americans will be able to feel a little more normal than they did this time last year. Would it be wise to be declaring independence from the pandemic right now?
10: Well, look, I wouldn't be declaring mission accomplished. I think this is going to be a long fight, but I think we have had a near term victory against the virus in terms of getting immunity into the population through vaccination. And and virus levels are much lower than they were certainly last summer, and they're likely to remain low. I think you're seeing a decoupling between cases and hospitalizations and deaths because there's so much immunity in the population, not just through vaccination, but also through prior infection, people who've acquired immunity from prior infection. But this is likely to become an endemic virus. We're going to have to deal with it. It's likely to be on par with the second circulating flu this winter. At, at best, it's going to be on par with the second circulating flu. It could be a little bit worse. And I think we're going to need to think differently about respiratory pathogens generally in the wintertime and be more vigilant about the spread of diseases like flu and like coronavirus. Uh, flu is fearsome enough. We were far too complacent about it. And given the fact that we're now going to have the equivalent of a second circulating flu, I don't think we could be complacent about the risk of respiratory pathogens in the workplace and schools anymore. So people are going to need to be more vigilant. We're going to have to do some things differently. That doesn't mean our lives change, but this is going to be a new normal.
1: Well, and about that, because you've talked a bit about how we have to start thinking differently. Does this mean, for example, we're probably going to have to keep a face mask in our pocket at all times or in our bag, especially come the fall and the winter, and that at times a company or a school... Or the airlines may say, hey, this week or during these few weeks might be best to mask up or just keep your distance. And is that going to become normal?
10: I think the use of masks is going to become more normalized. I think people are going to use them on a voluntary basis. And certainly people are at higher risk from COVID, bad COVID outcomes or from influenza. But I think going to work with the sniffles is going to be frowned upon. I think businesses are going to have access to routine testing. I think there might be symptom checks within certain settings. If you have a Congress setting where a lot of people are getting together, they might check symptoms. Fever guns might become more routine, even though they're not that helpful. I think you're going to see a veneer of safety superimposed upon upon normal life. That doesn't mean that there's Going to be mask mandates reimposed. I'm not sure that's necessarily what we should be doing right now given the substantially reduced overall death and disease we're seeing from coronavirus, which is likely to continue as long as this virus doesn't mutate in an untoward way. But I do think we're going to need to be more vigilant about the spread of respiratory pathogens. I mean, think back. It was always looked upon as being something that was somewhat brave if you toughed out a cold. That's going to be really frowned upon now. You don't want to be in a social setting where you don't feel well. You're going to be asked to stay home. So things are going to be different. I think we're going to deal different with the risk of respiratory diseases in the time.
1: So in other words, if you're that employee who shows up at the office with a cold and says, no, nah, it's fine, I'm going to work through it, really the boss should be telling you, no, go home, rest up, and don't get everybody else sick.
10: And you, might, and you might have a symptom check before you even come to work where they ask you a series of questions. And if you're a child who shows up at school not feeling well, you'll be sent home as well, too. So I think societally we're just going to have a different etiquette around the risk of respiratory pathogens. Um, we can't afford the morbidity and the mortality from flu and coronavirus being twin viruses that circulate at very high levels. Again, we were too complacent about flu. We let it infect and kill far too many people. I think we're going to have to think differently. That also means improving air quality in workplaces. We're going to be looking at things. Things like airflow and filtration. In the same way we greened buildings, I think we're going to make buildings more healthy as well.
1: Making his 68th appearance on Face the Nation, you have uh, surpassed Bob Dole and Joe Biden, and uh, you got a ways to go to catch John McCain. But Dr. Scott Gottlieb, we appreciate you being here, and we'll be right back.
9: Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas, and you don't know where to start. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now.
1: We head west now to the Republican governor of Utah, Spencer Cox, whose state is one of four where the number of Delta variant COVID cases has skyrocketed. Good morning, Governor. Part of why I wanted to chat with you this week is I know you have a unique situation in your state when it comes to infection rates and vaccinations. I want you to talk a little bit about that.
11: Sure. Well, we're, we're certainly seeing, uh, the, the Delta variant rise in, in our state, um, which is concerning. Hospitalizations are, are, rising again. Uh, the good news is that, uh, that our adult population is getting vaccinated at the same rate as the rest of the country. When you add in the, uh, the federal partners vaccinations, we're at about 69% right now, but we are the youngest state in the nation. And so we have a very large population of young people who aren't eligible to get vaccinated, those under the age of 12. And in every state, the younger you are, are, even amongst the eligible population, the less likely you are to be vaccinated. So we're working hard to encourage our younger population to get vaccinated. We have 89% of those over the age of 65. So we feel really good about that. And our death rates have come down because of that. But we desperately need more.
1: And I know uh, there have been reports of outbreaks uh, among children at overnight camps. Utah has a lot of them Um, And and I know you're eager to get those children vaccinated as our parents nationwide. How is your state prepared to do that once you get the go ahead to do it?
11: Yeah, well, we we have set up a very robust uh, uh, vaccination network. Um, our, our clinics are, are spread throughout the state. We're we're also a very rural state, so that that adds a, a component that's difficult as well. Uh, but we have mobile vaccine clinics all over the state. It's never been easier to get a, a vaccine. Uh, we're working with school districts. We did that before for those over the age of twelve before school was let out to have vaccine clinics available at schools or close to schools. Working with pediatricians. And and, and family practitioners as well. So we'll be ready once we get the go-ahead. We're, we're just waiting for, uh, for the FDA to make that decision.
1: And I know in, in several states across the country, they have set up essentially lotteries for people who end up getting a vaccine, and several people have won hefty sums of money for, for showing up after these lotteries began. But your state legislature, as I understand it, has blocked you from offering cash incentives to people for getting vaccinated. Are you being hamstrung by that? Would you like that option?
11: well we're certainly having those conversations with with the legislature um they're they're looking closely at what's working in other states i i i would like all options on the table but i i will say this i think you know not not dying is is a great incentive i, I my colleague jim justice governor justice this morning said um everybody's playing a lottery of sorts um it's if you're not vaccinated you're playing a different kind of lottery i think he called it the death lottery something like that uh but but certainly we're we're hopeful that uh, that reason will rule and, and people will see how effective these vaccines are. Again, 95% of, of deaths since May um, have been amongst uh, unvaccinated people in the state. So those are deaths that don't have to happen, hospitalizations that don't have to happen. Uh, it's, it's very simple and very easy to get the vaccine now.
1: We brought this up earlier with Jeff Zeinz, the White House COVID-19 coordinator, but there's a new Washington Post poll out this morning that reinforces the unfortunate partisan divide on vaccinations. Overwhelming majority of Democrats say they've been vaccinated. Just 45% of Republicans and 38% of Republicans say they'll definitely not get the vaccine. What do you make of
3: that?
11: Well, it, it's troubling, and I, I've spoke about this often over the past—I I mean, not even the past four years, but the past eight years—about uh, how unfortunate it is that that politics is becoming religion in our co- country, that that politics is becoming sport and entertainment in our country, that that pol- everything is is political. It's it's a huge mistake, and uh, it's caused us to make bad decisions um, d- during this pandemic and and in other phases of our life as well. So so it's deeply troubling. Um, We're we're doing a little better amongst Republicans here in the state of Utah when it comes to vaccines versus those numbers that you just shared. And we'll continue to work with with everyone in our state to get them vaccinated.
1: I want to turn your attention, Governor, to the weather. Um, There have been some incredible maps that have shown drought conditions in your state. Uh, You look at this map, for example, uh, a year ago versus now. Uh, 100% of Utah is in drought, 98% of the state is in what can be classified as extreme drought, 65% in exceptional drought, the highest intensity. What is the best way to respond to something that's going to be really difficult to reverse at this point?
11: Sure. Well, there, there are lots of different responses that, that are necessary. Um, one, we, we have to conserve water better. We have to use less water. And uh, that's going to happen in lots of different ways. We have water restrictions across the state. I'm also a farmer. We're, we're down about 70 percent of our water consumption right now. And that will have economic and, and food stability impacts across our state. So, So we just every person in our state has to use less water. We'll do that through restrictions and technology advances as we move forward. That's number one. Number two, um, and we talked about this with Western governors just this past week. Um, we, we, have to store more water. Uh, the, the people that settled these, these arid mountain valleys and, and, and Western, uh, states knew that, um, we're not doing a great job of that anymore. I'm grateful that in this bipartisan infrastructure push. There is money for that type of infrastructure. Um, storing water above ground and, and underground as well will make a big difference as We are also the fastest growing state in the nation. So we have to be prepared for generations to
1: come. I know this is personal for you. As you mentioned, you're a sixth generation, I believe, alfalfa farmer. Um, And so you see the effects of this. Your family has seen the effects of this. Um, But you are a member of a party that includes many who don't still believe in climate change. How detrimental is that to the future of the GOP?
11: Well, we're working very hard uh, to help people understand the impacts of climate change. Uh, you, you may have noted recently, Representative John Curtis here from the state of Utah w- was uh, helped to form a, a Republican climate caucus um, at the at the federal level. So there's more work being done there. But th- but that's a long term. I mean, that's as you mentioned earlier. That's that you know that's a, that's a 50 year solution. Right. And so we have to do better there. And Utah is doing better. We're cutting back on on emissions here in the state of Utah. Working with with our governors across the west to implement uh kate brown who you're going to have on we're working on uh electric car infrastructure across the west so great things are happening there but we also have to take the short-term impacts and take them very seriously which president biden did this week talking about wildfires in the west
1: yes governor spencer cox joining us from his home in fairview utah we appreciate it please come back and when you're here in dc especially please come see us We want to move next to Oregon, which is starting to subside from record heat. But each day we're learning more deaths are being linked to it. In Oregon alone, at least 95 people have died. Democratic Governor Kate Brown joins us from Portland with the latest this morning. And Governor, climate scientists have long said events like this hot streak you just had are likely to be more frequent, more intense, and last longer in the future. If that's the case, how should residents in your state and across the Pacific Northwest Be preparing for that. For example, if there's somebody that doesn't have an air conditioner, should they be going out and getting one right now?
7: Thank you, Ed, for having me this morning. Uh, Delighted to have an opportunity to appear on the program. Uh, We have been working to prepare for climate change in this state for a number of years. What was unprecedented, of course, was the uh, three days of record-breaking heat, and it was horrific to see over 90 Oregonians lose their lives, and we have to continue with our preparedness work. Um, that includes working with our health partners uh, that provide health care to vulnerable Oregonians uh, to make sure that they understand that there are resources available, for example, to buy an air conditioner if uh, they have certain underlying health conditions. We worked really hard with our community partners, our county emergency management departments, to get the message out that the heat was going to be uh, very, very uh, strong over last weekend. Uh, they set up cooling centers, uh, provided water to vulnerable Oregonians. Unfortunately, we still lost uh, too many lives. And- Absolutely unacceptable. Following events like this, we always do at reviews. And to see what we can do better next time.
1: And have you begun that review? Have you got any sense of what has to be done?
7: Absolutely, we have. Well, there's no question. I, I think the concern, Ed, is that this is a harbinger of things to come. We literally have had four emergency declarations in this state uh, at the federal level since April of 2020. Uh, in Uh, Labor Day last year, we had horrific wildfires. They were historic. Uh, We lost over a million acres, over 4,000 homes, and uh, nine lives. And what is really, really clear that, just like we saw during the pandemic, throughout these emergency events, our communities of color, our low-income families are disproportionately impacted, and we have to center the voices of black and brown and indigenous people at the forefront of our work as we do emergency preparedness.
1: I know this past week you met with the president virtually along with other western governors including Governor Cox who we just spoke with to discuss the drought and heat waves and these changing climate patterns. What does Washington, what does the federal government need to be doing to help these western states prepare for this new normal?
7: That's a really good question, and it was a question the president asked. In short, we need resources and we need boots on the ground. Uh, For example, we need financial resources uh, to be able to purchase uh, critical essential equipment like aircraft to help us fight fire. We need to make sure that we have adequate boots on the ground. Senator Wyden's done a good job fighting for the state of Oregon to get us Uh, financial resources to be able to train our National Guards, men and women, ahead of time so they can support our firefighting efforts. But it also means that agencies like FEMA, who do not aid our undocumented families, we need to make sure that that happens. So, for example, um, of the families that lost homes uh, in southern Oregon last Labor Day fire, um, several hundred of them were undocumented FEMA does not provide aid or assistance to these families. It is absolutely unacceptable. These families are so much a part of our communities. They're the heart and soul of our culture, and they are the backbone of our economy. They deserve the assistance and they need it.
1: I want to move you to one other issue that is of uh, urgent importance there in Portland, where you are, and in many other cities across the country, and that is the surge in gun violence, especially at a time when police agencies across the country are struggling to retain or hire new officers. You're seeing that issue in Portland. How should police agencies across your state, across the country, deal with this surge in violence at a time when their ranks are depleted?
7: Well, there's no question that the city of Portland, like many cities across the country, are hurting right now. Uh, The level of gun violence is absolutely unacceptable. We are continuing to move forward on uh, legislation at the state level. Every Oregonian has the right to be free from gun violence. In terms of our law enforcement community, uh, we have had in this state, and I think across the country, a long overdue clarion call for racial justice. And what is really, really true is that our law enforcement system needs a culture change. And that's area that I am working on with my team and with new leadership uh, at the agency that uh, trains and oversees uh, the Oregon State Police and law enforcement across the entire state.
1: Let's have you back to talk about that again sometime soon. We appreciate the time today. Happy Independence Day to you, Governor Brown of Oregon, and we'll be back in a moment.
6: What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, What makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
1: In a recently declassified report, U.S. intelligence officials have offered no explanation for dozens of unexplained sightings witnessed by Navy pilots since 2004. Congressman Andre Carson of Indiana chaired a classified briefing on this report and joins us from Washington. Congressman, happy Independence Day to you. I know you can't share all the details of that classified report. We wish you could. Uh, And before we talk about UFOs, I want to ask you about these reports of a new ransomware attack over the weekend that apparently has affected at least dozens of American companies. As a member of the Intelligence Committee, have you learned anything more about it?
5: Well, these attacks obviously have always uh, targeted primarily uh, two pillars of our American foundation, the government and U.S. businesses. And we've seen this debacle with SolarWinds. We've seen it with the Colonial Pipeline. Uh, We've been briefed as a committee. We're looking into it. Uh, The Biden administration has a very serious plan in terms of pushing back on these attackers. And so... Uh, along with the uh, startup entities and small businesses and the U.S. government, we're working on encryption. You know, we want a system that is is protected, but we don't want something that's so impenetrable we can't catch criminals right. and, and and human sex traffickers. And so we're working through this issue regularly.
1: Just for the sake of time, to cut to the chase, do we know who did it? Was it Russia?
5: Uh, I can't speak to that matter right now.
1: Okay, not taking it off the table. Understood. Uh, um, Look, this report uh, that the Pentagon released and that you're pushing uh, for more conversation about, it's about a nine-page declassified report. And nowhere in this do I see mention of the words outer space, extraterrestrial, or alien. Seems they didn't want to go there. Is that wrong? Should that be ruled out?
5: Well, the report is inconclusive. Uh, What we do know is that there are nearly 100, and there have been nearly 150 sightings. 80 of those sightings have been detected with some of the best technology uh, the world has ever seen. And uh, we we, we can't rule out something that's otherworldly, but that's a very small percentage. Uh, People want uh, members of the government to say it's extraterrestrial. We won't stop there, but certainly... Uh, It it poses a technological concern for us, and it poses a national security concern for us because we don't want our adversaries to have, one, a technological advance uh, 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 over us in terms of what they can do and their capabilities. But what is curious is that many of these sightings have occurred around many of our military assets, our naval bases, our military installations.
1: Yeah, I mean, you said earlier this week in another interview that it's your hope that these so-called UAPs aren't something from another nation who has a strategic and technological advantage and that it's not from the private sector. I mean, if it's not them, then what is it?
5: Well, I mean, you know, we always have to look at natural phenomena. We have to look at the weather balloons. We have to look at drones. We have to look at aircraft that we may not be able to understand. At least most people may not be, under, uh, be able to understand But if it is otherworldly, we have to take into account uh, our our, our advancements in terms of our cell phone technology and why aren't these images being captured. We have to think about the nearly 4,000 satellites that are orbiting the Earth right now. Most of those satellites have cameras attached to them. Why hasn't any of that information been released? And so... Uh, We still want to make sure that our adversaries don't have a technological edge on us, but we still can't rule out that 2 to 6 percent. That could be something we can't explain, maybe even otherworldly. So my hope is, as the chairman of the subcommittee on counterintelligence and counterproliferation, that we will have a series of hearings and possibly a public hearing in the very near future. When would that be? Um, You know, we we have a pretty ambitious schedule. Uh, Chairman Schiff has a pretty ambitious uh, agenda. And and my own committee, we're planning on having a series of hearings, hopefully uh, in Indiana as well, dealing with um, uh, our white nationalist threat, uh, our internal threats to our internal security. And hopefully we will discuss UAPs in the very near future. I can't give a definitive date right
1: now. You've talked about uh, sort of dealing with the stigma of the possibility that this is coming from somewhere beyond Earth. In your view, quickly, uh, is there life out there?
5: Uh, look, it, it would be arrogant to say that there isn't life out there. Uh, certainly, I believe that there's something in, in the, in, in the span of the universe. Now, the question is, is there life in our solar system? Perhaps the moons uh, of some of our planets will give us clues. Maybe there's microbial life. Maybe there's life in some of the oceans on the moons. We'll find out very soon, hopefully.
1: We, we appreciate this out-of-this-world conversation, Congressman. Thank you for spending part of the holiday with us. <laughs> for Face the Nation, I'm Ed O'Keefe, in for John Dickerson, who's in for Margaret Brennan. We appreciate you being here. Enjoy your 4th of July. Have a great Sunday. Today's guests were White House COVID-19 Response Coordinator Jeffrey Zeints, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, Surfside Florida Mayor Charles Burkett, Oregon Democratic Governor Kate Brown, Utah Republican Governor Spencer Cox, and Indiana Democratic Congressman Andre Carson. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hayden. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Force. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also broadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m.,
0: 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern, every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com
6: survey. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. Why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+.
7: Plus. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes Podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode.